Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been considering the book of Ephesians, which really is viewing the church through spiritual eyes, rather than a building that we understand it as a body. And we have completed the doctrinal section of Ephesians, the first three chapters, and started considering the uh, areas of practice in chapters 4 through 6, and how we are to walk in the new relationship that we have. The, the new identity that's spoken of in the first three chapters is then played out in our walk in Christ in chapters 4 through 6. And we've spent some time here because these verses really bring us to the core or the heart of our church ministry. What we're, we're doing and why we're doing it, that really as we understand what, what God is doing and seeking glory in the church, that ought to be what motivates, animates, energizes our ministry, our service. And when we understand what God has done, bringing us into a relationship with Himself through Jesus Christ placing us into a family relationship with other Christ followers as a body, it impacts how we live. And what I want us to consider this morning is the area of divine gift giving. And look at the truth that every believer, every Christian has a gift that Jesus Christ, the giver of these gifts, has given, and he's given them for a purpose. And, we, and recognizing he is able to do this because of his victory. You know, our familiarity with victory parades and celebrations uh, is most commonly connected with sporting events. Uh, growing up in Michigan, I didn't have much opportunity to experience that, um, those kinds of celebrations. Our teams just didn't really do that much. And, of course, I realized being in Arizona, that's kind of the same thing. I think it was the Diamondbacks back in 2001. Uh, and, you know, most of our college students weren't even born then. And so, you know, I, I feel right at home in much of this. And so sometimes I, I have to enjoy those celebrations with other teams. And on Sunday evening, three weeks ago, uh, when I got home from church, I, I turned on the game six of the NHL championship. It was between the Colorado Avalanche, the Tampa Bay Lightning. In Michigan, I had developed an interest in hockey. We played on the river right near our home. I watched Hockey Night in Canada coming over the, the border. And, so, and, and actually, the Red Wings were about the team that tended to have the best chance of doing anything uh, and still were a disappointment most of the time. And I know being in Arizona, you think they actually play hockey and they do it in June. Uh, but I was watching the game and my wife asked me, so who, who do you want to win? And I said, I really don't care. I just want to see a good game. Well, the avalanche won, and after the game ended, I, I continued watching for a, a bit. I, I you know, watched the presentation of the Stanley Cup. I enjoy watching them carry that over their head on ice skates, on ice that's been chewed up for, through that third period of play, and, and always wondering if they're going to fall. They don't, but, you know, there's a reason to watch anyway. And, and yet to watch the excitement of that. And, and see this, and, and then I turned it off. Well, a few days after this, this celebration, 500,000 fans turned out for a victory parade in Denver. The players rode on fire trucks, 
Dogs were dressed up in avalanche gear, and it culminated with victory speeches. Now, that celebration and what we tend to see or experience in the sporting arena is a very small shadow of the victory parade that's described in Ephesians 4. In fact, the picture here is is much more of a conquering king. And while we are not familiar with this kind of a parade, the people at Ephesus would have been. The, the conquering of, of a nation, and this is the Roman Empire at that time where, where Roman generals would return home with the spoils of war. In fact, we saw this depicted. Those of us that went on the trip in a few weeks ago to Italy, we saw it in Rome with the 50-foot-tall arch of Titus. There in Rome, it really gives a better insight of that. This arch of Titus was a carving, and and at the top there is a carving of the Roman god Victory. We know better by the Greek name, Nike. And the inset that I've given you another picture of depicts the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It shows the menorah, the, the larger circle there, and then the table of showbread that had been taken from the temple and brought back to Rome. The historian Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish historian writing for the Romans that writes of the triumphal parade of Titus and his father, Emperor Vespasian, returning from that conquering of Jerusalem. Here's what he said. He said, Circus Maximus could hold 383,000 people and it was filled to capacity. The members of the Roman Senate led the parade followed by other dignitaries, A band played military marches. Then came treasures from all over the Roman Empire. The plunder, the spoils of war, gold, silver, ivory, rare gems and crowns and other objects so numerous that it seemed strange to call them rare. There were tapestries, robes, and coins, and it was like a river of wealth. The parade parade included images of the Roman gods, captured weapons and armor, some cleaned, others still stained with the blood of the enemy. Banners in Syrian and Aramaic. These were followed by massive floats, three to four stories high, with painted scenes depicting battles and cities that had been conquered, pictures of the enemies being slaughtered, city walls destroyed, the temple burning, and on each float was the conquered leader of that city reenacting his surrender. Then there were the battered ships and captured boats followed by animals of of many kinds. And while most of the plunder was heaped up for display, the most valuable plunder came with an escort guarding it. It was the massive golden table of showbread, what is shown here, and the gigantic seven-branched candlestick, all made of gold. These, along with the 93 sacred vessels from the temple and the scrolls of the law of Jehovah that were lifted high, honoring the Roman god Jupiter in triumph. The instruments from the Jerusalem temple were followed by the living plunder, the prisoners of war. 700 were dressed in bright robes that contrasted their their war-disfigured bodies and their gloomy faces. These were followed by the priests, who were forced to march wearing their priestly garb, and the high priest wore the temple raiment. All of this was a curiosity to the spectators. These prisoners had been well fed so that none would faint during the parade, but that treatment would end 
after the show was over. Then came the sacrificial oxen, followed by the Jewish military leaders, and the most prominent of these was Simon Bar-Gorius. The crowd threw rotten vegetables and garbage at him, and when the procession reached the temple of Jupiter, it would stop and Simon would be killed. Then the sacrifices would begin. And finally, at the end of this three-hour parade that included catapults, battering rams, other engines of war, came the military commanders, Vespasian and his son Titus. Titus had destroyed the temple. Vespasian was wearing a, a robe of the Roman god Jupiter, and a slave held the crown of gold over his head. And as the slave held the crown, he continued to say to Vespasian, Look behind you and forget not that you are immortal. With all the pomp, with all the circumstance, with all the victory being displayed, Vespasian was reminded, You're only immortal you will die. Now the Ephesians would have an understanding, though that parade had not happened yet, the temple still stood, they would have an understanding of that kind of victory in the Roman Empire. And so when we read this passage and when we see the scene that's depicted in, in, in verses 7 through 12 of our, our text for this morning, it's, it's that of a conquering king. And, and I want us to consider that, and while that's our text, I want us to read, as I've said many, for several weeks now, that the full context begins in verse 1. I want us to see the flow of this passage and understand what is taking place. Follow with me as I begin reading Ephesians 4, beginning of verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering. Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body, for the edifying of itself in love. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, as we look into your word, we pray that we would understand the truth that is here, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts, that we would apply it personally to live for your glory, demonstrating the unity of the Spirit in our local body for your sake. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 1 of this told us that the way we live really reflects the magnitude of the change that has taken place. So the theme for this section, the verses we just read, is unity. Verses 1 through 3 speak of the attitudes that are essential for that unity. And we've considered these, the, the graces. Verses 4 through 6 we considered last week, which provide the grounds of that unity, the essential aspect, the oneness in the Trinity. And understanding that, now we move from the whole to the individuals. And what we see here is that there is unity in diversity. That we can have unity without uniformity. And so what I want us to consider this morning is that as a Christian, you have personally been equipped for ministry because of the victory that was accomplished by Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see is that the spiritual gifts are supplied to every believer. That change that comes in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. That, that there's a change of focus from the, the group, the whole body, to the individual. And the text gives us three indicators of that. First of all, the very first word, but, marks the contrast with what has preceded it. That there's a diversity in the oneness of the body. The contrast is seen in what took place in verse 6, the statement in verse 6, where the word all was repeated four times to now we're changing to each one of us. And so that would be the second indicator. And then the third one is the change from you and your in both verses 1 and 4 to us in verse 7. And it's important to see that while the unity is displayed in the whole church, the body is made up of individual members. And that's what we're seeing here. That, and and I'm, I'm stressing it because in our individualistic, consumeristic culture, it's easy to get lost in the crowd and assume, well, the church exists for me. Rather than seeing I'm a part of a local body. Or say, well, that doesn't really apply to us. Rather than seeing that we're a vital part of an a organism. And that each of us is gifted to facilitate ministry. That every single believer is gifted and empowered to contribute to the growth of Christ's body so that God will receive glory into the church throughout all generations. That's how all of this is coming together. The conclusion of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. And so what we see here is, first of all, that Christ provides the necessary grace for service. That most of us know the definition of grace as unmerited or undeserved favor. And it indicates that divine enablement. Well, that's part of what's taking place here. But the grace of God that brings salvation doesn't just stop there. It teaches us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires to live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. But it also empowers us then for service. So the grace of God is what gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. It's that power for living. It's also the power for serving. And the, the grace that's mentioned here goes beyond the general concept to the particular aspect that each of us has that empowerment for service. And that's what this word is telling us. 
that we're saved with a purpose. The, the Greek word for grace is charis, and, it, and it's speaking of that in the idea of a grace gift that is given. In the early church, there were many of these, and we see the gifts mentioned in other passages. Some were sign gifts, miraculous sign gifts. I believe those were for the establishment of the early church, and that there was a, a purpose, purpose and time for those. But the gift is for service. The second thing, though, that we see is that Christ determines the specific gifts for service. That it is Christ who determines those gifts. The gifts are given to minister for God's glory. They're equipping us for service. And understanding that that's what this passage is telling us, that each one of us, the grace was given, how? According to the measure of Christ. That Christ's gift, that, that Christ chooses the gifts for all of us. What an amazing thought. I don't, I don't know about you, but selecting gifts can sometimes be a challenge. I, I told my wife yesterday that we have 23 weeks until Christmas. And, you know, for those of you that plan ahead in shopping, it's like it's getting close. Uh, for those of you that do your shopping at Circle K or 7-Eleven on Christmas Eve, you still got a lot, long time. But trying to decide, what gift do I get? What gift do I give? And, and for the right person, and it can be a challenge with children or grandchildren, which, what do we get for each one? Do you realize the gifts that we have been given were chosen by Christ? And he knows best what we need and can use. And understanding that, that he's the one who decides. In fact, he has the authority. It says in Matthew 28, verse 18, and Christ stated that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he demonstrates that by bestowing gifts on us. And the, the reason for those gifts is to fulfill his purpose to advance the cause of the Great Commission and that great commitment to one another, to love one another. And not only does he determine the gift, he determines the amount. If you, if you want to hold your finger here and turn back to Romans chapter 12, we see this mentioned in Romans chapter 12, that the, this aspect of gifts, and we, we have them mentioned here again. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the Again, the first verses where most of us are familiar with about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices and that that's really our spiritual service of worship. And then verse 3 it says, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body... But all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual, ind individually members of one another. So what we see in these verses is that every member of his body receives a measure of that gift and a particular function. So it's unwise for us to turn to somebody else and say, well, I, I can't play the trumpet like these men did. So therefore, I can't serve the Lord. Or I can't sing like somebody in the choir. I can't play instruments. Or I can't teach. Or, or I can't. And, and to compare ourselves with one another and say, because of that, I can't serve. That, that's unwise because God has given us what we need to serve in the area that he has for us. And so he doesn't measure us to say, well, why can't you do what they did? Because he knows what he's given us and he knows the amount of it. 
And so we see that then in verse 6 of Romans 12. If you're still there, look at verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who, who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so the passage is going on saying, whatever your gift, use it in a way that will bring honor and glory to God. Now, sometimes we, we talk about in, in leadership and in our, our, our meetings about having the right people in the right seat on the bus. And I, I think that's a helpful analogy for organization, but probably less helpful for a church as a living organism. Because the dangerous we think we're all sitting on a bus is then we, we just critique how the driving is. Did we get where we wanted to be? Did we get there on the right time? And, and I'm just sitting back. And, and one of the dangers in church is if we become spectators, it's easy to become critics. You know, I can watch a hockey game on television and say what I think they ought to be doing. But when you see how they get hit and, and just being on ice skates and having all of that going on, you're amazed they do what they do. And when you're in the game, it's a much different perspective than when you're just a spectator. And recognizing the importance of that, I think a better illustration would be an orchestra where you have so many different instruments that have a unique part to play and yet they have to play it with the, the right volume, the right tempo and aware of all that's going on around them. And if they don't do that, it doesn't sound real good. Now, I realize in our day and age, sometimes there's music written that's kind of avant-garde and pushing the boundaries of creativity, but for us non-musical people, that, that usually doesn't sound real good. A number of years ago, my, Judy and Caitlin and I were visiting some missionaries in Austria, and when we had asked them ahead of time, we said, would there be any way that we could go to the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra? And so they, they set it up. I said, you know, we'll, we'll take care of the tickets. If you can get them, we'll go together. And, and so they got us tickets, but by the time we got tickets, all the seats in the auditorium were full. The only seats that were available, and they, they actually sold seats on the stage. So we were sitting kind of back over in this area, which was really, uh, it was really fascinating on one side because you can really watch what's going on. I'm looking right down the, the row of all the, the brass players. You, you don't quite get the same sound in the auditorium and you really have to sit still because all the thousands of people are looking at you. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to be well-behaved and not embarrass my family. And... They, they did this one really strange piece. And it's like, okay, I, don't plug your ears. That wouldn't be appropriate. Um, you're on the stage. But it just, it sound, to me, it sounded horrible. And, and they get all done. And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll give my courtesy clap. You know, just, you know I'm, I'm in, I, I need to be. And, and this lady who was sitting next to me, she gets up and she just goes, and then looked at me. And with this smirk of satisfaction. And I thought, I like her. <laughs> we, we, we connected at that point. And the reason to me it didn't sound good was it didn't sound like they were playing together. There wasn't harmony. You know, what is the sound of a ministry if we're not playing together? 
And understanding that as an orchestra has to think of the other players. They have to be aware of the, of the tempo, the, the notes, and bringing it all together, not for their own benefit, but for the, the presentation. That really is the picture that we have as a church. And understanding that, the application then is that the, the difference in your gifts and my gifts does not diminish their value or their necessity. So when we say, well, I can't do what they do. I can't be involved like they do. I don't have the strength to do what they're, they're doing. The, dim, the difference doesn't diminish the importance of what we're doing. The difference of value is determined by our willingness to use it for the glory of God. The issue isn't comparing myself with someone else, but rather saying, how am I being faithful to serve the Lord? That, that I am using what God has given me, that Christ is empowered for, the, for his service, that the focus is on your availability more than your ability. Because the ability is given by God and so is the power. So the real question is, are we available? Am I using what God, Christ has given me through the Holy Spirit to grow the body of Christ to bring glory to God? No gift should be unused, left on the shelf. There, there's no gift receipt. You say, well, I'd like to exchange mine. I want to get what they got. No, Christ has given us what we need. And so 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The multifaceted grace of God that we're to minister. Because God doesn't give useless gifts. Each one of us, you are a necessary part of the body of Christ. Let's not leave our gifts on the shelf or in the drawer, but serve for his glory. And we've talked about these as coming from the Lord. The second thing we see in this passage, though, is that, that the authority of Christ is how we get these gifts. That's number two, spiritual gifts are given by the conquering Savior. The, the scene that I described earlier is really the idea that is in play here in this passage of Christ as a conquering king. Now, I think the Gentiles in Ephesus and some of the Jews would understand that military parade triumph. They, they would get that picture of Roman conquest. But devout Jews would be reminded of Psalm 68. Psalm 68 was a hymn of military triumph, and it speaks of God's provision in giving gifts to his people as he returns home from the spoils of war, including enemy prisoners. Here's what Psalm 68 verse 18 says. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. So speaking of his victory, now compare that to verses 8 through 10 in Ephesians. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And what we see in these verses is that as Christ returns as the conquering king, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph or his foes, part of what he's bringing are the human spoils of really recaptured captives. That we were created for the glory of God. We were created to bring him honor. 
through sin we failed. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the results, the wages of sin is death. But it's through the death, burial, and resurrection, the life and death of Christ and his triumph that he frees us. Those who are described in, in Ephesians 2 as under the authority, the reign of the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience who deserved his judgment, he has rescued. It's like, it's like we were the prisoners of war who have been freed and we are coming back in this triumphal procession. And that's what verse 9 is depicting. His return to heaven from earth, but in order to return to heaven, he first had to descend from heaven he had to come to earth and so we see the first of all that Christ's triumph was preceded by his humility that it's that humiliation who being in the form of God Ephesians or Philippians 2 tells us thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and if that wasn't humiliating enough for the king of heaven to leave heaven and come to earth as a servant, he further humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the horrible, horrific death of the cross. And so I, I believe when it speaks of him going into the uttermost parts of the earth, it's, speaking of the ref, the, it's referring to the realm of the dead. Sheol, the realm of the dead, that not only did he descend to earth, he died. Low in the grave he lay. And that humiliation, what a humiliating state for the king of life to die. And he did it for our sins. And that humiliation precedes his exaltation. So in Philippians 2.9 it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and th those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we either bow before him as our Savior or others will bow before him as their judge. But all will bow before him. He is returning. He's returned as the triumphant king. And yet what we also see in this is, secondly, that Christ's triumph proclaims his compassion. And, and so the, the scene certainly shifts from Roman generals, Vespasian and Titus, and the brutality of what took place to a compassionate king that we're rescued because of God's great mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us and showed us that, those riches. That's what we saw back in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And we're raised up together with Christ and made to sit in heavenly places. We're not coming back as the spoils of war, but we're, we're given the position of children, heirs. How does that happen? It's because of the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works. Otherwise, we would boast. Look what I did. No, I'm in this parade because of the great king. And God's prepared works for every one of us to do. And, I, and I'm, I'm stressing this because I don't want us to ever get in the attitude that we're doing, we're serving simply out of duty. It ought to be out of delight. And that's what we see really as application. The delight in serving flows from your relationship with Christ that your delight ought to be because of what he's done and that's why when we began our reading in chapter 4 it began Paul said I therefore the prisoner of the Lord 
he wasn't ashamed to be part of this parade as one who had been captured, though set free, and serving the Lord. And the excitement of that. See, those who have been rescued from the power of sin and the realm of Satan are joining in this victor's parade, not as humiliated captives, but as honored children. That ought to stir our hearts to say, Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to be true. I want to be faithful in everything I do. So do you delight in the conquest of the gospel message? The joy in sharing the good news? Or is it more of a duty? Oh, how, how much we need spirit-motivated ministry, not guilt-motivated. And the spirit-motivated is when we realize the tremendous triumph as Christ the conquering thing. The third thing I want to see, though, in this passage very quickly is that the spiritual gifts are provided to develop spiritual maturity. And I, I, I had us read the rest of this section down to verse 16 because it talks about that maturity, but we see the gifts that are being given. And, and we see how these are, first he gave some to be apostles. Look at verse 11. The gifts that are given are according to his purpose. He gave himself to be some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And what we see in this passage is that the gifts are tools for edification. They're, they're not toys for entertainment. We're gifted so that we would serve. And the, the four or five gifts, depending on, on how they get grouped in this, that are mentioned are with the expectation that each will contribute to the spiritual maturity of the body. That it will bring us to stability, to, to, that we're not carried about by every wind of doctrine that blows across the, the Christian airways. Okay, but we ask, what does the Bible say? That's why I have you turn to the passage. I want you to see that's not what I'm saying. What does the Bible say? And what we see here, <clears throat> the, the gifts that are mentioned, and we've already looked that there are other ones in Romans. We saw there are another list in, in 1 Corinthians. But the gifts that are listed here are all gifts that speak of the proclamation of the word. The first ones are the, the apostles and prophets. They're mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 20. They laid the foundation of the church with Christ being the, the cornerstone. And so I believe that was a, a, a gift that was given for the establishment of the church, uh, that we no longer have that gift today. Those are not operative. When we are study on Sunday night, as we're looking at the apostles, I listed the qualifications that the Scripture give us for an apostle. And, and one of those was they had to see the resurrected Lord. And so, you know, I, I think that one is, is ceased. But they received, these are the ones who received the word and then declared it. And so we're, we're seeing that taking place. The, the evangelist that is mentioned is probably a missionary church planter rather than an itinerant preacher that we see today. And, and I know there's disagreement on that, but the word is only used three times in the New Testament. And the way it is used is very difficult to be dogmatic as far as how it is applied. But it is a, a word that would speak of proclaiming the gospel, seeing souls saved. And then, then as mentioned, in some pastors and teachers, the shepherding and instructing. And so the second part of this that I want us to see is these gifts are mentioned, they emphasize the priority of the word. That's what we're seeing in these. The commonality of the gifts here is the proclamation of the word, and it's by the word that faith comes. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10 tells us. 
and is by the word that we grow. So as newborn Christians, we're to be like, or as Christians, we're to be like newborn babies desiring milk. And the purpose is that we would grow, and as we grow, we also taste that God is gracious. That's 1 Peter 2, 2. So we grow and mature based on being in the Word, submitting to the Word, applying the Word, and then we're better equipped to serve. So, okay, you've talked about serving and all this, so how do I know my spiritual gifts? Is there a test or something? And I don't know if some have that. But I think just very quickly bullet points that help us is, well, are we surrendered? Romans 12 started with present your bodies as a living sacrifice before it talked about gifts, before it's talked about that. So we have to be surrendered to the Lord. Where do you see opportunities? Sometimes it's where am I sensitive? Well, you know, somebody needs to. Well, maybe I'm sensitive to that because that's what the Lord would have me do. What do you enjoy doing? What brings spiritual satisfaction? You know, some people want to be behind the scenes. They don't want anybody seeing what they're doing, but they love to be able to do that. Where are you currently serving? How are you maturing? You know, we see this with our children. As they mature, we start to see their, their strengths and abilities develop more. Well, the same thing happens with us as believers. As we grow spiritually, there's more of that. And so the question then is, your commitment to God's Word will determine your maturity. So how are you doing? What is your commitment to Scripture? As we're in God's Word, are we applying it personally? You know, the, 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 the arch there in Rome, the arch of Titus, as we stood at the base of that, as I'm looking up at this arch, it's a reminder of the victory that Titus had accomplished in conquering Jerusalem and bringing back those spoils and the menorah, the, the table, the, the gold, the destruction that had happened in Jerusalem. It was depicting the, the success of Titus. The victory of Jesus Christ is not displayed in an arch. It's displayed in us, his body. As every one of us is given gifts and then equipped and strengthened to serve him. So as a church family, as we are faithful in serving, it ought to be so that God receives the glory in the church, which is how chapter 3 ended. That that is our purpose and that we would be faithful, that he would be glorified as we serve him in the church. So are you growing personally and serving practically to advance Christ's purpose? Our motto as a church is ministers every member. How are we doing in serving him? Do you know him as your personal savior? If so, are you faithful? Let's bow together for prayer this morning.